Well, as Susie mentioned, my name is Kevin Johnson, and it is a delight to be with you this morning. My title is Community Pastor. Uh, some of you may not know what that means. That's primarily about helping us as a church uh, be a church of small groups. Because we believe it's the life-on-life stuff. It's Sunday mornings are awesome here. They are the best I've ever been at. And, and, and it's, it's small groups is about how we take what we hear on Sunday morning and work it into our lives the rest of the week. It's joining with a, a group of people to help us do that. And so that's, that's my primary task here. But on occasion, as has happened a, a couple of weeks ago, Greg pulls me into his office and says, Hey, Kevin, can you speak in a couple of weeks? And I'm delighted to have the opportunity to do that, so I instantly blurted out, Sure, I'd love to, even though I knew my family and I had committed to be on vacation this past week. But I had no sooner gotten sure out of my mouth than he said, Well, you know what I'd like you to do? I'd like you to finish up the series that I've been on. And my heart just sank. And I thought, but I didn't say, No way! I mean... Oh, the stuff we've been getting these last couple of months is just incredible, isn't it? We are so blessed. It's been, it's been so thought-provoking for me. And, and revolutionary. And it's just, it's just been incredible stuff. And so, to tell you the truth, I walked out of his office and I thought, you know, I bet Michelangelo, when he was about 95% finished, with the Sistine Chapel, didn't hand his sticks to some hack and say, finish it off for me, will you? <laughs> so, uh, even though my boss uh, told me what he wanted me to do, I, I kind of went over his head and I asked the Lord what he wanted me to say. And uh, <laughs> Greg will be back next week to finish off his series. <laughs> You know, like Greg, um, probably three, four, five times more than Greg, I sense such a need as I am up here in front of you uh, and before the Lord sharing the Word, uh, the need for prayer. So I just want as many of you as will to commit to praying for me and the Word going forth as I speak this morning and that the hearts, the minds, the souls of everyone in this room would be receptive to what God wants to do in our midst this morning. And to that end, I'd like you all to join with me in prayer right now. Father God, You have drawn us into Your presence by being here with us in this, in this worship that we've experienced this morning and it's a wonderful thing. And I just ask that You will take these open, receptive hearts right now and speak to us and change us and make us more into the image of Your Son. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about ambitions. Everybody has ambition. We hear a lot about ambition all the time. This week, we've been inundated on the news and in the newspaper with stories about the likes of Tiger Woods, the most passionate, ambitious golfer perhaps to ever to play the game. He is arguably the best golfer of our day. He is arguably the best golfer of all time. But the people who are on the PGA Tour with him and are playing out at Hazeltine in Chaska even as we speak, they will say of Tiger Woods, 
He is more ambitious about his golf game than anyone. He's more dedicated. He practices harder. He organizes his entire life's calendar around his game of golf. Now, that's ambition. Frankly, I admire him. I play the game of golf. It's a great game. But but that someone with that much ambition for slapping a little white ball around on some green grass would make the headline news every you know all week long. That's a little puzzling for me. It's golf. We've also got another form of ambition filling the front pages of our news stories over the past month or two. And this has to do with corporate executives who've been jamming their pockets with tens of millions of dollars and leaving their shareholders and their employees with nothing. Ambition run amok. So much so that the president ordered about 600 of the corporate executive CEOs of the largest companies in America to verify their books and to sign a statement certifying the veracity of their books because of ambition run amok. Well, everybody has ambition. Are ambitions good? Are they bad? Can we, can we certify our, our ambitions? In fact, the title of my message this morning is Certified Ambition. That's what I want to talk to you about today. And I'm going to base it on a passage from Philippians where Paul is taking a good, hard look at his own life and examining his own ambitions. The text that I want to read for you this morning is going to appear up on the screen. It begins in Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 3. And it reads like this. It is we who are the circumcision, we who worship God by the, who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, you know what? I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like it was prescribed, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And then down to verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. What do you want to be when you grow up? That's the question I want to ask you today. And you're saying, I know what you're thinking. Kev, that's an odd question to ask a room packed full of adults. What do you want to be when you grow up? Paul, the adult, thought that was a very good question. I had a man after the first service come up to me and say, Kevin, I'm thus and such years old and I'm going to be retiring in mid-September 
And I'm glad you asked that question because I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. When I uh, was a young lad, first thing I wanted to be was a fireman. You know, you get that tour of the firehouse when you're in, in uh, kindergarten. And me and all the buddies who were brave enough to slide down the fire pole, we wanted to be firemen. Wow, that was my ambition. Then it changes. As we got into the Cold War, I kind of went through the grade school thing during the Cold War. And, and my, I remember one of my teachers in particular lecturing some of us guys that if you really want to make a difference for this country, you need to be an astronaut. Because the Cold War was going to be fought in outer space. We had to beat Russia to the moon and all that sort of stuff. And if you're going to make a difference, be an astronaut. That was my ambition. I think it changed in the decades that followed. The computer generation took hold. People wanted to be the next Bill Gates, the next multi-billionaire who made it rich out in Silicon Valley. I don't know where it's at today. But, you know, maybe some of you had the same experience I had as a young guy growing up. I tried to figure it out this week. I can't remember if it was from my mom or my dad or my grandma or my grandpa or a school teacher. But I got pounded with this idea, and I bet you did too. You know, there's one thing that you're the best at. You're better than everyone else in the world at this one thing, and you just need to figure out what that is. You know, when I was a kid, I remember thinking, that's nuts. And even now, I still think the same thing. There are over six billion people who walk the face of the earth today. And if you, anyone can show me a list that it has over six billion things on it that, are, that you can be best at, you know, maybe I'll try and pick one, but I don't think such a list exists. Six billion things to be best at? When I was a little kid, I grew up over on the east side of St. Paul, not far from here, actually. And I spent my days, my youth, on the fields of Hazel Park Playground. Now, I don't know what's happened to Hazel Park Playground, but back when I was at Hazel Park Playground, it was the field of champions. We consistently won the city championship and were playing in the state championships in football and in hockey and in baseball, and those were the sports that mattered to me at that time, and I enjoyed being on the field of well, I wasn't on the I enjoyed being on the bench amidst the field of champions. And I had this idea that had been pumped in my head, well, you got to be best at something, and it wasn't football. I was way too small for that. Hockey, I was just okay. And baseball, yeah, I could field, but, you know, it was just all right. And what, what was the one thing? Finally, when I was 11 years old, I figured out what I was best at. Over at Hazel Park Playground, the, the clubhouse or the building was built on a hill, and so there was a retaining wall on the side of the the building, going away from the side of the building, and the drinking fountain was right above the retaining wall. And we'd all walk over and fill our cheeks with water and then stand with our toes over the edge of the retaining wall and see who could squirt the water the furthest out between their two middle teeth. And I was the best. I was it. I had found my one thing I was best at. This little skinny blonde-haired kid could squirt water between his two front teeth further than the high school kids. It was it. 
Then, when I was 12, my mom made me get braces, and that messed up my entire life. It was gone. Found it at a young age, and it disappeared. When I got to college, as I look back on the ambitions I had when I was in college, they were about like this. I'd really like to find a job I enjoy. I see a lot of people who seem to be miserable working. If I'm going to spend my life working, I'd just as soon find something I enjoy doing. I wanted to someday have a nice house. And I hoped to have a wife who loved the Lord and loved me. That's it. And you might say, you did pretty good, Kev. Could have done better. Could have thought dreamed bigger, could have done worse for sure. Ambition in and of itself is neither right nor wrong. But we can trip up on our ambitions in a few different ways. And here's, here's how. One way is through the placement of our, our uh, ambition. We can run into problems when we place our ambition in the wrong direction. In Matthew 20, there's a great story of this. I'm just going to read a little bit of that story. This is where the mother of the sons of Zebedee, she came to Jesus with her sons. This takes some nerve. (laughs) You know what she did? She got on her knees and she said, Oh, Jesus, please, I just have one favor to ask of you. Jesus says, What is that, ma'am? Well, just grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right when you build your kingdom and the other may sit at your left. Man, that takes nerve. That's ambition. It's like, hey, my two guys here, James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee, two of your disciples, just set them up real good, would you? Take care of them. They're my boys. What a request. Now, there's some ambition. Now, the interesting thing to note is what Jesus does. At that point, the disciples became real indignant at the two brothers, which leads me to believe they were behind the whole thing. They just figured mom would be harder to refuse because they didn't get mad at her. They got mad at her brothers, at the brothers. And then Jesus calls them all together and he says, you know, the, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. But it isn't so with me and my kingdom. And not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as I, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus, it's very interesting to me. He doesn't slam the mom or the, her sons for having ambition. You'd expect him to say, hey, let me smack you guys on the back of the head and say, get it right. This is what he doesn't do that. He just says, you know what? Ambition's a really good thing. If you're going to have ambition, put it in the right place. Another thing we can learn about ambitions that can trip us up is that they are sometimes misplaced. Uh, or it's that they're misplaced, but it's also that they come with mixed motives. I'm reminded of a man named Salieri. 
If you're a musician, you study classical music, you might know that Salieri was a man who, as a musician, was good, but he wasn't great. He was a contemporary of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who, in a sense, was the Tiger Woods of the musical world of his day. He was the young prodigy. Everybody oohed and odd. And Salieri, he wanted to be a good musician. He wanted to be a great musician. He dropped on his knees and he asked the Lord for one thing. He said, Lord, bless my music. Make it great. And every piece I write, I will dedicate to you and your glory. Just make it good. Well, this man Salieri, he heard about Mozart and he heard that his music, he heard his music and it was absolutely brilliant. And he moved. He changed cities that he lived in to be around Mozart because surely he felt if this man's music is so great, that man must be as well. And yet what in fact he found is, is what's so often true, that greatness of talent does not always line up with greatness of character. And so Salieri was confused. Mozart's music was divine, but the man he despised. And in the end, he ended up hating God for gifting this buffoon Mozart in such profound ways. While he, Salieri, coming from the right background and having the right beliefs and going to the right schools and acting in all the right and proper ways, his music was only mediocre. Sometimes we trip up when our motives are misplaced or when our ambitions are misplaced. Other times we trip up when our ambitions come with mixed motives. What is driving you? What are your ambitions? You know, the third place they can trip up is is they're just inadequate. Are your ambitions adequate? Are they big enough? Has life beat you down so much that you dare not dream of anything anymore? It's another way we can err. is when our ambitions just fade away to nothing. Paul, in our text before us, back to Philippians, had an ambition revolution. It culminates in verse 10, and I'm going to focus on there in just a minute. But the previous verses, he tells us how he got there. And I want to look at that with you. I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. It'll appear up on the screen. He starts by saying, hey, you know, I'd be able to boast about the things I've accomplished. I'm just not going to bother, and here's why. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the elite tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law as a Pharisee, as for zeal, I was the one on the forefront of persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Here's a guy with some real ambition, people. He was the Tiger Woods of his religious world of his day. He could say, look at me. I am true blue. I am the real deal. Anyone who walked by my house knew I was like a city set on a hill. I came from the strictest sect. 
I knew my Bible inside and out. My ambition was to rise to the top of the religious world, and I did it by doing everything right. Not by trickery, not by chicanery, not by cooking the books. I did it right. Whew, that's ambition. I can tell you right now, I could never muster up that kind of gumption. But then he goes on to comment on it in verses 7 and 8. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul has done an accounting. It's like the leader of the land, similar to what happened in our country this past week. The leader of his world, God himself, tapped him on the shoulder and said, Audit your books, buddy. Audit your books. And Paul did that. He read the bottom line and you know what he said he had? Rubbish. Around here before, we've talked about the Greek word, the actual word in the Greek New Testament for rubbish. It's skubala. <laughs> That's a great word. It just kind of gives you the willies when you say it, doesn't it? Let's all say it on three. One, two, three. Skubala. Skubala. Yeah. Gives you the creeps. It's a perfect word here. We've actually sweetened it up a little bit by calling it rubbish as we take it from the Greek to the English because what it really means in the Greek are things like excrement or rotten food or a rotting corpse. In other words, Paul is pulling out all the stops here and calling what he had, what his ambitions were, scubala. He's saying they're not only utterly worthless, they are repulsive to me. Well, what happened to Paul? How did he get there? I guess one of the questions I need to ask you this morning is what can change our ambitions? What, what takes us to a new place in our ambitions? There are a few things we could talk about. The first is just the seasons of life sometimes change our ambitions. Gradually, as we move through a season of life, we, we find we're in a different spot. Sports used to be the love of my life. Now, you know what? I enjoy a lot of different sports. But they're surely not the love of my life. I just have fun with them. Sometimes, a second thing can be circumstances. Whereas in the seasons of life sort of ambitions change, it's a gradual shift. Sometimes we're confronted with circumstances that just hit us and we come out different people. The loss of a loved one. Oftentimes this happens as we're, we're grieving with someone. I'll just notice that through the loss of a loved one, something drastically changes about the person who's who's felt that grief and had that experience and they come out with a whole new look on life, a whole new set of ambitions, if you will. That can happen when you go through an abrupt job change. It can happen if you go through an illness. I know people who've gone through, uh, been diagnosed with cancer and then they beat it, praise the Lord, and they come out of that just a different person. 
But the third thing that can change our ambitions is the one I want to dwell on this morning, and it was what Paul experienced, and we call it spiritual revolution. Simply put, for Paul, he met his Maker. He met Jesus Christ, and everything changed. He encountered the risen Lord, the one whose, whose followers he had been attacking. He met Him face to face. On, on, in the book of Acts, it tells us he was on his way to Damascus to persecute some more Christians, and, and Jesus met him there on that road. It was the risen, resurrected, living Lord of the universe offering him love and forgiveness like he had never experienced before. And it changed his life. And for those of you who are with us this morning who have never tasted the goodness of God in that way, boy, after the service, I'm going to invite you to come down and talk with some of our prayer counselors or with myself. I'll linger afterwards because I would count it such a privilege to be able to talk with you about how you can taste and see the goodness of God for the first time. But something happened to Paul here, folks. He encountered the risen Lord, and and that for him begged two questions. What have I been? And what do I want to be? Today, within our church and within many churches, I think the tension point is not that we need to have an experience like Paul's on the Damascus Road. It's what happens after that experience. I think the tension for us has to be with somehow it never gets into our psyche that that sort of experience creates a fundamental change in the way we think and in who we are and in how we live and in what we dream. It's like sometimes I think we just figure what we're doing is folding up. We're getting this life insurance policy and sticking it right here in our back pocket. I'm set. It's going to sound odd. But sometimes I wonder if the worship and teaching at Woodland Hills is almost too good. Now, I say that not really meaning that. That that can never be. But what I mean is this. Sometimes I think this is so, we have such a great experience on Sunday morning that we go away so full and by default we just go, oh, that's going to carry me till next week. As if this were the end of our ambitions. People... This is meant to be the launching pad of our ambitions. Amen? Paul experienced Christ and had a radical change in his life aspirations. Spiritual revolution does not equal the deadening of our ambitions. It means the unleashing of our ambitions. Yes, they may need to change, but no, following Christ is never about putting a dimmer on our dreams and our hopes. It's about setting them free in new and powerful ways. So let's look at what Paul went for, what he dreamed about. He sums it up in verse 10. It's quite a simple verse. 
He says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. And I look at that and say, ha, got some new ambitions, huh, Paul? Well, you know, they're not bad. But didn't you ever want a gilded chariot with a big white stallion pulling you through those towns? You know, Paul was a tent maker. I mean, come on, Paul. Didn't you ever want to set up this tent making company that had the corner of the market for all the tents being built in the Middle East and Europe? Just think of how many churches you could have funded if you had done something like that. How about dreaming big, Paul? Hey, buddy, didn't you ever want to have a mega church? He says, now here's what I want. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. I want us to look at those three things. We're going to unpack each one. The first one is about knowing Christ. And the first one humbles me. I grew up in a great family and I learned at a young age to know the Lord and to love Him. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful to my mom for bringing me there. What's this about knowing Christ? I know Him. Come on, Paul. It's kind of humbling to me. You are the writer of so much of the New Testament. You are the one who God just gifted in such profound ways to go establish churches all throughout Europe. You need to, your new ambition is to know Christ. Well, we need to wrestle with that, people. We need to wrap our arms around that one. We need to grapple with that one and not let it go. First of all, we need to understand that he's not talking about intellectual assent here as if you know about somebody. I know about Tiger Woods. I know that he's maybe the greatest golfer on the planet. I know he practices diligently. If you put a picture of him and a bunch of other golfers up on the screen, I could point him out as Tiger Woods like that. I don't know him. I don't know what goes on inside his soul other than he inspires to greatness on the links. It's a big difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing him. The actual the actual word Paul uses for knowing here is the same word that's used elsewhere in scripture to connote marriage and marital intimacy. I want to know Jesus. I want to know him that close just like a husband and wife know each other. That's what Paul's saying. I want to pursue Christ. I want to share my life with Him. I want my life to be wrapped up in His. If that's what the Apostle Paul wants, I want to go for it and I want us to go for it. So how do you do that? What's that going to look like for me? I don't know. You need to take that to the Lord in prayer and He'll show you. Maybe it's just starting with a robust prayer life. Maybe it's plunging into Scripture like you've never plunged into Scripture before. Maybe He's calling you to some of the, what we call around here, spiritual disciplines. Things like fasting and prayer where you're just pressing in to know your Lord at a more intimate level. Maybe you need to get into a small group 
and join hands with five or six other people who will say, let's go for it. Let's get some real ambition here and really know Jesus. If you're wondering how you can gauge how you're doing there, I just ask you this question. Here's how you can tell. How has your life changed in the last three months? How are you a different person in the last six months? See, because it's to the degree that you are pressing into God and getting to know Him better and sharing life with Him and pursuing Him and knowing Him in an intimate way, life is going to change. You don't have to then go try and give up a bad habit. God's just going to work in your life. This one humbles me. We've got to get there together. It was number one for Paul. <laughs> it's amazing. Marvel at that, will you? Don't let go of that one. The second one, if the first one humbles me, the second one challenges me. The second thing, he says, I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of His resurrection. That is just Paul's way of saying, I want to be filled with the Spirit. Because it's the same writer who says in Romans 8.11 that the same power, if you are a Christ follower, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Oh, that challenges me. This one blows me away, to tell you the truth. And here, Paul is saying, go for it. Have some ambition. Experience the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. I've got to tell you, I come from a tradition where that was really downplayed. In fact, it was frowned upon in my tradition. I know that's not the same for everybody here, but it is for a lot of you. It's like, wait a minute. There are a lot of excesses that happen when you start pursuing stuff like that. What, you mean pursuing God? Well, you know, there are some people who've kind of gone off the deep end getting into this sort of stuff, so just leave that alone. you got your Bible and that's all you need. That's really the message I got. And yet here, okay, same book you just pointed me to, it says, among above everything else, I count the rest of it rubbish. I want to know Jesus and I want to know the power of His Holy Spirit working in my life. I have lately been hearing God call my name. And you know what He says? He says, Kev, get some real ambition. It's okay. I am safe. Yo, I'm a very dangerous God, but I'm safe. Trust me. You can trust me. I've shared with my wife, I've shared with some of my closest friends uh, that I just God is doing a work in me and I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how it's going to play itself out, but He's saying, Kev, I want you to develop the gift of faith. Don't be afraid of my Holy Spirit moving in you in a mighty way. And I don't know what that means, but bring it on, Lord. Bring it on. But here's the catch. I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit, that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, dwelling in us, being active in us, correlates not so much to a personal buzz or a personal power, time, feel-good thing, but it correlates to the extent that we jump into the fray and start doing ministry, building the kingdom of God. 
Paul didn't just dream about Holy Spirit power in his life so that he could kind of walk around supercharged and if someone touched him, got a little zap. Paul jumped into the fray. He immediately began saying, Lord, I'm going to follow you, and if that means building your kingdom, I'm laying down my life just like you did. Let's go. That's why he was full of the Holy Spirit. He sold out on making an impact for Jesus. And it was a very natural thing for him to know the power of the resurrection in his life. So there are lots of people who need to join Paul in that endeavor. And if that is the spot where you're at now, you feel the Lord prompting you there, grab that red ticket that the children's ministry handed out earlier and get involved in Kids Station. I can tell you from first-hand experience, I've got a nine-year-old son named Kenny. I love that little guy. And his teacher for the past couple of years has been Bob Kennedy. And Bob Kennedy has the Holy Spirit flowing through him into the life of my son. In ways that are profound. Get on board. Whatever your gift, whatever your passion, get on board. Whether it's kids station or getting into a small group or being involved in care ministry or taking on a mission in your neighborhood to reach out to some of your friends who don't know the Lord. It's to the extent that we get into the fray that the Holy Spirit power that is already in you is unleashed. This one challenges me. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Oh, I'm challenged by that. Now this third one, it kind of scares me. It's the hardest one to understand. He says, and I want to know the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. Huh. What do you mean by that, Paul? That doesn't sound too fun. Well, for one thing that can help us understand that, we go back to the sons of Zebedee in Matthew chapter 20, when Jesus says, you know what? You guys got a little off here. I came to serve and to give my life away. And Paul here is saying, that's what I want. That's what I want. Jesus, that's what you did. That's what I want. I want to share. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings. I want to live my life like you lived your life. That's what I want. The other thing I thought of by way of an analogy that best explains this text is the analogy of two couples pledging their li- or two people pledging their lives as a couple in marriage did a wedding ceremony out in Plymouth last uh, last weekend and the couple the hus- the bride and the groom said I'll paraphrase but if if you've uh, been married you've done something similar to this you look your spouse to be in the eye and you say I promise to be there I want to share life with you in sickness and in health. We're going to be together for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. 
Now, I've, ne- I've done lots of weddings. I've never had somebody write some vows that say, you know, I look forward to us being sick and poor and, and, and having a lot more worse than we have better. That's, I'm just looking forward to that. Of course not. That's not what we mean. When I pledged myself to Kathy, I said, whatever comes our way, whatever trials, whatever hardship, the good and the bad, I just want to share life with you. I think that's what Paul means here. Not that we would relish pain and suffering, but that we would share in it willingly for the sake of the cause. It's hard for us to relate to in 20th century America, isn't it? But it's to the extent that we share in the life of Jesus that we're getting at the heart of Paul's ambition here. Valuing what he values. So in a way, that brings us full circle. That brings us back around to where Greg has left us, talking week in and week out about outrageous love. Because Jesus did have a heart for the down and outer. Jesus did have a heart for the prostitute and the scum of society in his day, which was the tax collector. And and as Greg put those images up on the screen at the close of last week's message, (coughs) excuse me, pictures of all the unlovables in our society. Jesus has outrageous love for them sacrificial, servant heart, outrageous love for them. And sharing in the fellowship of His sufferings is about giving ourselves in ministry to the unlovables. If we are to understand Paul's ambition here, it will be through following our Lord in a life of sacrifice for the kingdom for others. The sons of Zebedee said, Hey, set us up here real good, would you, Jesus? And Jesus made it very clear that following Him was a life of sacrifice and servanthood. And if you're going to strive for anything, strive for the heart of a servant, then you'll be like me. And Paul here is saying, That's what I want. That's what I want. That's my ambition. Paul did an ambition audit and he had it certified by Scripture. It's to know Christ and the fullness of His Holy Spirit and the privilege of living life like Jesus. What of you? What do you want to be? when you grow up. I have five questions for you. I'm going to ask them as a form of prayer. And just ask that the Spirit would speak to you in prayer through these five questions. So close your eyes and bow your heads and just prayerfully reflect on these as a form of prayer. Number one, what do you value most in life? Number two, 
What occupies your time and effort? Third, what is driving you? Four, where does your security lie? And five, Whose approval are you really seeking? Holy Spirit, move in this place right now. Lord God, we don't ask for less ambition. We ask for more. Move in our hearts and help us to make it the right ambition. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'd like to invite the prayer counselors to join me up here at the altar. If you have any need at all for prayer or counseling, come up for some prayer. We'd love to meet with you. If you need to get to know the Savior of whom I spoke this morning, come on up and talk to me. Thank you. You're dismissed.